0: Welcome to the New Testament Review,
1: where every episode we review a classic work of New Testament scholarship.
0: I'm Laura Robinson,
1: and I'm Ian Mills,
0: and we're both PhD students at Duke University.
1: Today we're discussing Dating the Apocalypse of John by Adela Yarborough Collins. This was published in 1981 in the journal Biblical Research.
0: We're doing a little bit of a break of format. Every episode, we talk about a landmark piece of New Testament scholarship. And this essay that we're going to talk about in particular, this essay in itself is not necessarily a classic. The reason why we're highlighting it is because Dr. Collins is the landmark scholar on Revelation. You can't do a project on Revelation without talking about her work.
1: We picked this piece because it's a good introduction to the different issues and considerations that come into play when you're trying to situate the apocalypse of John Historically. Yeah. And so this sort of introduces us to her approach to the document and to the field of scholarship on Revelation in general.
0: Ian, what's this article about?
1: AY Collins is gonna try to historically situate the Apocalypse of John, figure out when it was written based on primarily the internal evidence. So she's gonna go over the main features that scholars have used to figure out when this text was written, focusing primarily on Revelation 17. And she's going to argue for a Domitianic date. And we'll talk about what that means and when that is in a second.
0: The uh, the first question you're going to have to ask when you're talking about when a book was written is who wrote it. Uh, and that's not always clear when you're talking about biblical books, as I'm sure has been uh, quite clear to people who have listened to our show for a while. The book itself is attributed to a man named John who is on the island of Patmos. And traditionally, the author of uh, th- this John who wrote the book has been identified with John the Apostle, uh, the same person who wrote the, the Gospel of John. And and was one of Jesus' twelve disciples.
1: So although Irenaeus identifies this with John, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, scholars since Dionysius of Alexandria, writing in the third century, have almost universally agreed that this cannot be the case. Dionysius pointed to the massive stylistic differences between the book of Revelation and the gospel of John. These are vastly different stylistic works, and more recent scholarship has pointed to Theological differences. The Gospel of John seems to believe in a realized eschatology, whereas Revelation thinks the universe is about to end. The treatment of the Jews of the the tribes of Israel is significantly different. But perhaps more importantly, the Book of Revelation doesn't necessarily even claim to be written by John 1 of the Mm Twelve. John is a super common name in the first century among Christians, and 2114 refers to the Twelve Apostles as Twelve Foundations of the Church, as if they were these classic traditional figures who probably are long gone. So the gospel doesn't even seem to represent itself as written by the Apostle John. So here scholars' claims are not actually in conflict with the way Revelation itself portrays itself.
0: Yeah, This isn't a case of what we call pseudepigraphy, where someone pretends to be a famous person and writes a book in their name. You know, the author of the, of the book, we just know that he's John and he's on the island of Patmos. We don't know anything else about him. Um, and he never makes any claims for himself beyond that.
1: The earliest tradition we have about the Apostle John comes from Papias, who says that John and James were both killed by the Jews. And this antedates all the traditions we get about John, you know, being sent to Patmos and then being burned alive in oil and all those traditions. Those all come later and possibly arise in the midst of confusion about multiple Johns existing. Dynasties of Alexandria tells us that there were two Apostle Johns buried in Ephesus. And so we have very early this sort of confusion rising up around lots of Johns. Papias himself mentions there are two Johns, um, probably. He says there's John 1 of the 12, and then John the Elder, from which he gets his traditions. Um, So from the earliest period, we have confusion rising up around these many Johns.
0: So authorship doesn't really help us date very much because we just have this person named John of Patmos. We don't really know anything else about him. Obviously, if we knew it was John the Apostle, we'd have to date it within, you know, relatively few decades of Jesus' own life. But again, you know, there's no reason to think this is one of the twelve. This is just somebody named John. So the author doesn't really help us very much here. So we have to look to other sources to figure out when Revelation was written. A.Y. Collins starts with the issue of external evidence. When do other people say Revelation was written? Uh, So our first, our earliest evidence for this is Irenaeus, working in the second century. He says that this book was written under Domitian.
1: Domitian reigned from from 81 CE to 96 CE. And we're going to talk about the Domitianic persecution, if it did exist, what it was, in a second. But this is usually dated late in Domitian's reign. Collins points out that it's meaningful that Irenaeus both thinks that the Apocalypse was written late in the Domitianic period, so 96, and Irenaeus thinks that John the Apostle wrote Revelation. Because for John the Apostle to live to the late Domitianic period would make him very, very old. And so she thinks the internal conflict within Irenaeus suggests that the Domitianic date originates from a separate tradition. That it's not simply arising from identification with John the Apostle, but these are two separate traditions that are coming together in Irenaeus, um, and this is one of her arguments for why we should trust the testimony of Irenaeus.
0: Irenaeus also has some uh, pretty significant mistakes. For instance, he thinks that the Apocalypse is written by John the Apostle, and as we said, that's not
1: true. He also relates the traditional authorship of the four Gospels, the first complete layout of this program that Matthew wrote first, and then Mark, and then uh, Luke was the com- the companion of the Apostle Paul, and we're going to talk about this in our Stanton episode to be released later, but scholarship has pretty much undermined Methean priority.
0: All that is to say that Irenaeus doesn't really have his finger on the pulse of historical issues related to uh, gospel authorship and, and dates, so there's not really a great reason to think that Irenaeus might might have some access to information on the date of this gospel that other people wouldn't have. If external evidence doesn't get us very far in trying to date this apocalypse, what what internal evidence is there? Uh, Are there clues within the text of Revelation itself that might give us a sense of when this book was actually composed?
1: So Laura and I both agree that the best argument has to do with referring to Rome as Babylon. Contemporary and earlier Jewish sources don't call Rome Babylon. They call Rome the, the Kittim or Rome is often called Edom or Egypt in Second Temple Jewish literature. There are a number of traditional ways to refer to this great antagonistic or sometimes a little bit ambiguous empire, but it's not called Babylon, because what is Babylon's association in the Bible? Babylon destroyed the First Temple. Now, in post-70 Jewish literature, Second Baruch, Four Ezra, the Sibylline Oracles, texts that know about the destruction of the temple and no rome did it these start to call rome babylon and often this association is spelled out explicitly uh the sibylline oracles say rome is babylon because they destroyed the temple so this is really clearly laid out and it's probably not a coincidence that we start seeing rome called babylon again uh, in christian sources that are dated post 70. first peter uh, we're not going to go into all the issues there, but 1 Peter is one of our other earliest sources. Most scholars agree that this is definitely a post-70 work.
0: Right. And it doesn't take very long for Jewish, or Jewish sources to snap back to not calling Rome Babylon anymore. Uh, rabbinic sources, by and large, prefer the name Edom. This is still a sore p- spot and still something that is really at the forefront of Jewish people's minds when they think about what's so awful about Rome.
1: Its post-70 date is an important piece of information to keep in mind. Because when we start looking at the number of kings and things like that, um, it's really tempting to put it earlier, but this probably pretty, pretty certainly fixes us after the destruction of the temple.
0: The other thing that is a good indication that Revelation is written after the destruction of the temple is the fact that in chapter 21, the heavenly city hasn't got a temple in it. This is a really strange thing for a Jew in the first century to say if the temple was still existing. Uh, there's a lot of I, there's a lot of language in early Jewish literature of the idea of an ideal heavenly temple, and one would probably assume that if the temple was still a really important part of Jewish Christian worship, that this heavenly temple would descend along with the rest of the heavenly Jerusalem at the end of all things. But the author actually draws attention to the fact that there is no temple in the heavenly Jerusalem, and that the 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 Lamb itself is the temple. So this is a pretty good indication that the author has theologically resigned himself to the fact that there's not a temple and uh, their, their theology has made room for this.
1: Yeah. A Jewish Christian author who has grown accustomed to the fact that there is no longer a need for a temple, yeah. um, seemingly because Jesus has replaced this right. for the author, it strongly suggests a post-70 date.
0: So then this gets us to the other piece of internal evidence, and this part's going to get a little convoluted. So the second piece of internal evidence that Collins draws upon to date the text is the seven kings in Revelation 17.
1: Before we get there, Collins says that scholarship can basically take for granted a reading of chapter 13. Um, so the seven kings are in chapter 17, but in chapter 13 there's this discussion of this beast who is injured, who's going to come back, The Mixed Divine Claims, and it concludes, of course, famously with the number of the beast being 666 or 616. And Collins says scholarship can pretty much take for granted that this beast is Nero. Both 666 and 616, the two numbers that show up in the text, work as gematria for the name Nero Caesar. 666 is with the movable new, a way of spelling Nero, um, and 616 is without. We're not going to go into all of this because Collins doesn't. But Roman sources talk about this, like, story or rumor or legend that was going around about how Nero hadn't really died. He was in the east, and he was going to come back with an army and retake Rome. So this idea of Nero Redivius, um, the the, re, the revived Nero, probably is what the author is referring to in chapter 13.
0: Let's move on to chapter 17, which is where we get the sequence of the seven kings. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Also, they are seven kings, of whom five have fallen, one is living, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Rome is famously the city with seven hills.
1: We even have Roman coins picturing Rome as a woman sitting on top of seven hills, which is exactly the image Revelation is using. So let's recap these seven kings. There are five That have fallen. So Mm -hmm. apparently five dead emperors. One is. One is current. um, The other has not yet come. And when he comes he will be around just for a little while. So there is a future king. Who's going to be around briefly. And then there is an eighth. So five done. One current. One future but brief. And then the eighth who is not yet to come. But belongs to the seven. And this eighth is is described as a beast. Which is exactly... What the Nero Redimibus from chapter 13 is called.
0: So the question is who are the five who have fallen, who's the one who's living, and who's the one who's going to come and reign for a very little while? It is incredibly hard to take a list of Roman emperors and make them add up to 511. It's easy to get Nero to be the fifth on the list. You know, if you count from Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, yeah, Nero would be your fifth your fifth object, but the question then is who's ruling now and then who will come after them who will rule for only a little while.
1: So Nero is the first emperor in what's called the Year of Four Emperors. Nero and then Gelba, Otho, and Vitellus each rule for only a matter of months. And so you have this big flurry of four emperors in quick succession, and then you have Vespasian and Titus, in which the Jewish war happens and the temple is destroyed, and after Titus you get Domitian. So... Trying to get this so that you have seven emperors and then an eighth, who is one of the original five, is really tricky.
0: Yeah. It's also, it's even harder to make it all add up so that you get the text to be after the destruction of
1: the temple. Exactly. So a straightforward reading would make Nero number five, Galba is the sixth during which the author is writing, Otho is the short one predicted to come, and Vitalis is the beast? Yeah, no, that
0: doesn't make any sense. And then if it's written during Otho and he doesn't know who's going to be the emperor next, if this is being written during the reign of Otho, that the temple is still there. So what's with all this temple destruction imagery?
1: A consideration that Colin doesn't take very seriously is that the author is purposely antedating himself. And this is something which shows up in basically all the literature of this genre. The author of Daniel, Sibylline material, the Enochian literature, the Baruch literature, all of these apocalyptic books are writing as if they were written in a much earlier period, and they retell history as if it were the author prophesying. So Daniel's the most famous. Let's do Daniel. Yeah. Daniel is written very clearly in the Maccabean period, and scholars have realized this since antiquity, because Daniel puts in the mouth of the biblical figure Daniel a very clear history that runs right up until the Maccabean period, um, and then The history all goes wrong after that. It's, you know, a series of empires, and then there's a little bit of help, which is the Maccabean period, and then there's this unfolding of history that doesn't make any sense after that. So usually you can date apocalypses pretty precisely by when do they start getting the history wrong? When do they start prophesying that then there's a divine inbreaking and God solves everything? Because that's usually when the author is writing. But the point is that the author doesn't represent himself as writing. At that point, the author represents himself as writing much earlier and getting all of this history right as prophecy. And it looks to a lot of scholars like that's precisely what Revelation is doing. Writes as if the temple is still standing. Go and measure the temple corridors and do these things. But as we've already seen from the name Babylon and from the explicit prophecy of the temple's destruction, which comes just a few verses later in chapter 11, and also the absence of a temple in the heavenly Jerusalem very likely the temple is already gone while the author is writing this. So they're writing as if they were prophesying the destruction of the temple, when in fact for the author this is already settled history. How is that relevant for the king? The one who is the sixth is probably when the author wants you to think that this thing is written. But they already know that the the emperor to come next is going to be for just a little while. And it's really suspicious that the emperor who's going to come next happens to be the year of the four emperors, which really famously is when a bunch of people rule for just a really brief period of time. And this seems awfully suspicious.
0: Yeah, it's worth noting that this is our discussion of the dating of Revelation. Collins thinks that there's actually a separate source operating in Revelation 11 uh, when they go to measure the temple. Uh, She thinks that is a pre-temple source that has incorporated into this larger work. We don't think that's necessary because of the possibility of just antedating an, an apocalyptic text. Collins also thinks that this is being written during the emperor who quote is right now like that's the, that's who must be on the throne right now ian and i think it's way more likely that it's actually during the one who will be for a very short while right
1: yeah. but if you count from augustus the first emperor you can't get the one who is to be domitian um like collins wants it to be because domitian is 11th after augustus so how does collins get there
0: What Collins advocates for here is a selective counting strategy of the emperors, Uh, and it's not quite clear how the selection is being made. She thinks that you ought to start with Caligula, because Caligula is the first emperor to really run afoul of the Jews. Caligula famously tried to erect a statue of himself in the temple. That plan didn't come to fruition because he got murdered. So if you start with Caligula, and then she doesn't really lay out how she's making those decisions, but I would assume that Nero's on the list, because he famously, persecuted uh, probably Jewish Christians in in Rome, she adds it up so that, that Domitian is six. She says that you shouldn't skip the year of the four emperors for historical reasons, that they are emperors and are listed as emperors, but she leaves open the possibility that you can skip emperors for theological reasons, that there are some emperors that might not have been as important to the author of the text. So,
1: And Laura and I both think this is plausible, um, that the author is just likes the number seven He likes numbers, um, symbolism throughout the book, and so has picked the number seven and then sort of fit it in his mind. The problem, of course, with doing this is you can no longer use Revelation 17 as probative for identifying an author, because if you're going to speculate on the theological motivations for including or excluding certain authors, there's no way to say, therefore, Domitian is sick, the one who is, and this is evidence for my dating. So to, to accept theological selective theory, you need to basically say that Revelation 17 doesn't tell us anything.
0: Yeah. It's also hard to figure out who the one who will be for a short time is then after Domitian. Then it's a complete wild card for what comes next if it's written during Domitian. And then, you know, Nero being the Antichrist who comes back at the end of all this, that still works out. But the point is, if we have to selectively pick a list of emperors to get to seven, it's really hard to use this in any kind of historically meaningful way to figure out what emperor the author has in mind when. And then the last issue that Collins gets into is the question of persecution in Revelation. It's long been assumed that the book of Revelation has to have been written during a period of persecution because of this very fiery language about Gentile leaders and talk of persecution in the text.
1: The arguments of J.B. Lightfoot set this off famously. Um, Lightfoot made an argument in his work on Clement of Rome arguing for the existence of a Domitianic persecution. He took as his leaping off point a statement of Melito of Sardis, which is preserved by Eusebius that says Domitian became the new Nero and also some traditions that are very scantily preserved about Domitilla, Domitian's wife, and Flavius Clemens, this other major figure in the Roman imperial household. According to a work of Suetonius that we don't have preserved, but is quoted in later sources, Flavius Clemens was put to death for being an atheist. And there are also traditions about Domitilla and Flavius Clemens doing some Jewish practices. Now atheism of course is a classic charge that Romans levied against Christians. So Lightfoot suggests maybe this is the beginning of this tradition about Christians being persecuted under a demission. If Clemens was a major figure in the Roman Christian world, having him executed by the emperor would certainly look like persecution. The only other thing is Clement of Rome writes, uh, speaking of this present upheaval, and it's not at all clear what he's talking about, but some scholars have suggested that maybe that is precisely this sort of Domitianic persecution.
0: So there's two problems here. One is, is Revelation actually written for a persecuted church? And the second question is, did Domitian persecute Christians. And the answer to both seems to be kind of a, no, nah, doesn't look like it. Um. So Revelation doesn't actually mention persecution of Christians as a historical fact very often at all. Chapter two mentions uh, a, a man named Antipas who was executed for being a Christian. And then of course, uh, John of Patmos himself. As far as historical references to persecution in the author's own dagos, that's it. Um, there are martyrs under the altar. There are a million things that could be those. It could be an eschatological assumption of this uh, long period of martyrs, of martyrdom that's going to be coming up soon. Most of the references to persecution in the work are predictions in the future that there will be a lot of persecution, uh, which of course we see in all the gospels. There's not many references to historical persecution in the text itself.
1: And these allusions to Antipas and John of Patmos look like the sort of sporadic occasional persecutions that our sources tell us about in the first and second century not the sort of systematic things which lightfoot and others have posited Pliny's letter to trajan of course is the famous instance of this what does persecution look like in this early period it's not an emperor systematically making people worship him and hunting down christians it's local governors or aristocrats getting upset by a christian for whatever reason maybe it's Failure to participate in local customs or something like that. Getting upset and sort of this local upheaval, popular upheaval, that ends up seeing someone get mobbed or having a local governor remove a Christian and ship him off to a prison.
0: And the other thing that Collins wants to draw attention to, as we just said, is did Domitian actually persecute Christians? And it kind of seems like the answer is no. You know, secular sources, for instance, say that Nero persecuted Christians. It shows up in Suetonius and Tacitus. Um, Suetonius never says anything about Domitian persecuting Christians, and uh, which was an activity he approved of. And if Domitian had done it, he would have almost certainly brought it up. The earliest record we have of Domitian being a persecutor of Christians is in Melito of Sardis. He has this narrative of Roman emperors, uh, only the, the ones who are thought to be evil and bad emperors persecuted Christians, not because the Christians had actually done anything wrong or illegal, but because these emperors were evil and they exhibited their evil through their persecution of Christians. So again, it's not a great source for an actual Domitian persecution. So anyways, all this adds up to A.Y. Collins saying that the, the dating of Revelation under Domitian is quite plausible. Uh, Domitian didn't persecute Christians, and Revelation probably wasn't written under persecution. Therefore, you know, these this text can correspond fine with this date.
1: So the Domitianic persecution was a traditional reading for scholars to date Revelation to the period of Domitian, and A.Y. Collins wants to maintain that dating, while also saying that persecution probably didn't happen. So her argument is basically, you don't need persecution, active, government, systematic persecution, to write an apocalypse. Christians were under general, popular, social pressure. The imperial cult was prevalent, and that that sort of outgroup mentality can give rise to this literature just as well as anything else. And so, uh, sporadic, popular quote-unquote social persecution could certainly have provided the occasion for writing this sort of literature.
0: This is where we get a bit into uh, what Candida Moss has popularized the term of the myth of persecution. It's really easy for us to imagine the first three centuries of Christian history as just being this constant dogged pursuit of emperors uh, prioritizing the finding and destroying of Christians. You know, there's the The evidence of history just doesn't really support this narrative that Christians were constantly being hounded by the government and uh, these were the situations out of which Christian literature arose. It actually seems a lot more like the toleration of Christians doing their own thing really waxed and waned. Uh, In some areas where the imperial cult was particularly important, there might have been more consequences for Christians refusing to participate And um, in times of uh, social upheaval, Christians might've been useful scapegoats. We see this uh, particularly under Nero, but we can't assume that revelation has to be a product of persecution because it's not necessitated by the text. And also Christian history doesn't bear this out. Most apocalypses were probably not produced by persecuted communities.
1: For evidence that you don't need actual persecution to generate the rhetoric and perception of persecution, You need look no further than modern-day America, in which the vast majority of American citizens are Christians, every president ever has been a Christian, and virtually everyone in our Congress is a Christian. And yet, Christian Republicans are constantly talking about the widespread persecution of Christians in America. Obviously, there is no such persecution going on. And yet, if your only source for reconstructing the modern American situation was Fox News, you would think that the government, currently run almost exclusively by people who claim to be Christians, are running an anti-Christian program. uh,
0: Yeah. So, just that, like, you can't use Dinesh D'Souza's blog to decide uh, the treatment of Christians in modern America— so you can't use ancient Christian literature or reports of persecution to necessarily give you a great history of the way Christians were being persecuted at that time. To take a less cynical approach to it, there's also just a million different situations in which apocalypse was rhetorically useful and meaningful for people. Apocalypse is a way of expressing feelings of cultural alienation or dissatisfaction with the reigning authorities or desire for, desire for more just government. I don't want to be too quick to say that the author of John has to necessarily be a person with a massive persecution complex and a paranoid personality who's just a mess. Uh, No, I, I think that there are a lot of very legitimate social reasons to write these kinds of apocalypses. There's a reason why this genre was so widespread in the ancient world. The symbolism and the language of apocalypse was really useful for expressing desires and anxieties that really couldn't be expressed any other way. So all that is to say there's no clear social situation that that's, uh, the Apocalypse of John points to.
1: Yeah, Unlike Dinesh D'Souza, ancient Christians were in fact under significant social pressures from things like the imperial cult and their inability to participate in normal social gatherings, which involved eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Which is a nice transition to the anti-Paulism in the beginning, first five chapters of Paul. Absolutely, yeah,
0: totally. Um,
1: Another argument that is often used to date this work really early is that Revelation explicitly condemns eating meat sacrificed to idols. And this is something which Paul says, you shouldn't just condemn this, you should tolerate the weak. Um, And we know this is an okay practice, it's just if people object to this, then, you know, consider their feelings, more or less. But there's nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols. So it looks like Revelation here is taking a non-Pauline, anti-Pauline position. And some scholars have argued that this must mean it's dated very early because nobody writing in the 90s, because they can't imagine anyone writing in the 90s disagreeing with Paul. Lauren, I think this is pretty (laughs) incredible. That pretty obviously there were people much later than even the 90s who continued to maintain anti-Pauline positions. Um, The Pseudo-Clementine literature is an example of this. Um, the letter of James, maybe this Matthew might be a, some a figure from the 90s who is clearly anti-Paul. This is a kind of silly argument.
0: All that is to say, we have no idea when Revelation was written. Right. We've just that those are the arguments for or against certain dates.
1: Post 70. Yeah,
0: post 70. It's definitely after the temple. Beyond that, uh, Ian and I are just going to have to throw up our hands on this one. Um,
1: Revelation 17 is hopeless.
0: We hope you enjoyed that. Uh, <laughs> that you learned something about Revelation, yep. and uh, we'll catch you guys in the next episode. Okay. Thanks.
1: Leave us a review. It's easy. Open your podcast app, find our show, scroll down, hit five stars, more people will find us.
0: Leave us a positive review, though. Yeah,
1: you can only leave five star reviews. You can find more about us on Twitter at Newt, N-E-W-T, review, or email us at newtestamentreview at gmail.com. I've seen brighter stars than you. I don't mind. Professors love telling students that this book is not called Revelations. Do <laughs> uh, the
0: church at Revelation. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: I think someday we're going to dig up a town in Asia Minor called Revelatia, and all those professors <laughs> are going to be sorry.